Healing is not about feeling better. It's about feeling everything. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. Guess who's got a new mic? And this shit is sounding good. For any new listeners, I am Andrea. I am a total shit show. I am also an adult child. And if you don't know what that is, that is someone who grew up in an alcoholic or dysfunctional family whose childhood is negatively impacting their life as an adult. And if you are listening to this and you're wondering, hey, am I an adult child? The answer is probably, but you can check that by going into the show notes. You're going to see a link to the laundry list. So these are the 14 common characteristics of an adult child of a dysfunctional family. If you have, uh, I think they say three or more, you are an adult child. But here's the good news. All of the cool kids, all of the cool folks are adult children. So normal is lame, if you ask me. So today we are diving deep with Ben Taylor. So Ben is the face behind the YouTube channel, the Instagram account, Raw Motivations. And he refers to himself as a self aware narcissist who educates people on narcissistic personality disorder as well as um, he's a coach and he has courses that help people navigate through various narcissistic situations. And so I was just thinking as I was preparing my notes to do this introduction, is this interview controversial? I personally don't think so. I don't think that he said anything that is particularly jarring. I don't know. Let me know. He does not refer to himself as a recovered narcissist. He does not refer to himself as as a healed narcissist. As I said before, he refers to himself as a self-aware narcissist who is under the impression and, you know, based off research I've done, that most people with narcissistic personality disorders don't change. It's not that they can't change. It's that they don't change. And that is because one, it requires awareness, which most will never have. And then it requires a very intense willingness to do the hard work needed to change. So Ben will be sharing with us about his journey of discovering that he had narcissistic personality disorder, the various childhood experiences that he had that perhaps led to this personality disorder, what healing has looked like for him, and the ways in which he helps others as it relates to narcissistic personality disorder. So he's mostly working with those who are in relationships with people with narcissistic personality disorder. So I personally am not an expert on this shit. Specifically, I don't know a ton about narcissistic personality disorder. I don't think I've ever dated somebody who is who has the personality disorder. I don't think that either one of my parents would qualify. But I do feel like it's a term that is thrown out a little bit too much. Although it's interesting, when I was doing the research for this episode, I read a few things where people were saying that It's a term that's not being used enough. (laughs) But I did just want to touch upon briefly the difference between narcissistic traits 
and actually having narcissistic personality disorder. So the actual personality disorder, it's estimated that around 1% of the population has NPD. I've read as high as 5%, but the consensus seems to be around 1%. And in order for someone to be diagnosed with the personality disorder, they must have five out of the nine traits. So let's go through these. A sense of self-importance, preoccupation with power, beauty, or success, entitled, can only be around people who are important or special, interpersonally exploitative for their own gain, arrogant, lack empathy, must be admired and envious of others or believe that others are envious of them. So again, somebody has to meet five of the nine traits in order to be diagnosed with the personality disorder. And here's the deal. People with narcissistic personality disorder are not inherently evil people. Some of y'all might disagree, but the important part here is that there are things within us, i.e. our childhood programming, that makes us susceptible, attracted to those with MPD. And so even if we're ending a relationship, there is work that must be done to understand why it is that we are attracted to these types of people. Just like there's work to be done to figure out why we keep figuring, finding ourselves in relationships with alcoholics or the emotionally unavailable. I do want to give a quick plug for Jerry Weiss, who was on the podcast a couple weeks ago. His YouTube channel, he has a ton of videos about adult children of narcissistic parents. Because there definitely are some unique characteristics pertaining to adult children of narcissistic parents that perhaps the Big Red Book doesn't go into a ton of detail about, so I highly recommend checking out his videos on that. So let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes you, need to damn the join shit show. So this is my online healing community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups where we have a ton of different discussion boards and where you can connect to other recovering shit shows who are doing the damn work to heal and who have amazing senses of humor if I do say so myself. If you haven't listened to this past shit show Saturday's episode, it was a recording from a recent group that we had. I try to do these fairly frequently so that you guys can get a backstage pass into the true magic and connection that is occurring within this community. So damn the join shit show because this is a really special place go see the show notes for a link to join next give me a damn follow on the insta on the tiktok at adult child pod and last but not least give me a damn five star rating on apple on spotify thank you love you all all right y'all it's my pleasure to introduce Ben Taylor, the face behind raw motivation, your self-proclaimed healed narcissist. What do we call it? Self-aware <laughs> narcissist? What the hell do we call you? So normally I say self-aware narcissist, letting people know that I am a narcissist. I do have a diagnosis. I've been through therapy and I'm still in therapy. So going through that 
long process. But yes, yeah, so I don't say don't claim that I'm healed or that everything is magically fixed. I still have the tendencies, the thought process, the mindset, but working on growing and changing and developing past that every single day. So when you say narcissist, do you mean narcissistic traits or do you believe that you have the personality disorder of narcissism? So I was diagnosed with the personality disorder. All nine traits are ones that I have had exemplified, you know, been full blown. And so a lot of my journey has been working on identifying those and working on developing successful habits to be able to break those habits of abusive nature of how I've interacted, how I've shown up in multiple different relationships. So one question that I often ask is like for people when they realize when was their kind of first aha moment when they realized like the true impact of their childhood, but did you have a pivotal aha moment as it relates to being a narcissist? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I didn't have a rock bottom. So you think that I would. And my personal opinion is from my own story and seeing a lot of people, I think a lot of narcissists don't even have a rock bottom. I think they have a pivot point where their rock bottom should be there. And then they switch into victim mode and like, oh, I'm just a victim. Everybody's against me, but they don't actually come to terms with, no, you're actually the problem. And so for me, it was a long drawn out little by little piece of the puzzle in one sense. Sometimes I kind of say, I started putting together all the puzzle pieces of my life and it eventually spelled narcissism. And then I started realizing like, that's what was going on, but I didn't have one moment. So I didn't have a moment of like, oh, I'm a narcissist. Like whenever my wife left, I didn't have that whenever, you know, I about lost the house, I lost my job. All these different things never culminated in this like aha moment of like, now I'm a narcissist. Now I need to work on this. Instead, it was like a long journey. So it kind of gave you like the cliff notes of it. It started like early on, just knowing that I was like different, knowing that I connected to people different, that I- This is at what age? Teenager. Like I knew like I didn't connect the same with other people. I knew I didn't have the same care, connection, empathy, emotions. I knew at that time that I boxed up things and I didn't really know till later on in life about compartmentalization, but like that's how my mind processed stuff. Can you think of a specific example where you're like, huh, I don't react the same way as other people? Mm, I would say a specific one would be in terms of like lines of like death. So like grandparent dying, you know, people in the family dying, no emotion, no response to it. I could go to a funeral. I could sing at a funeral. I could be right beside like my dying grandpa and not have tears, not feel the same thing that everyone is feeling. So I noticed there's a disconnect. Like there's a difference of how I respond to that versus other people. Well, that could just be like dissociate. That could be so many different things, right? Mm-hmm. But that was one of the first like things that I noticed uh-huh. just at a younger age of like, hey, I connect different than other people do. You know, that's something that's different. And then as I grew over, as I kept growing, like a lot of pieces of like the empathy pieces like that, I started to see, started getting to cycles of going from person to person. So like being with one girl, then being with another girl. And oftentimes those were like interconnecting of like was getting with a new girl while the old one was like going out, that kind of a thing to the place where I was never alone, never like without a person, you know, a lot of times we refer to it as supply now, but like never without a person in my life that I was texting, communicating, talking with however you want to phrase it. That's was just what I was always there. And that happened throughout all of like high school, continuing to college, and then ultimately continuing to marriage as well. Okay. Let's hear some more signs. Yeah. So as we continued going through life with those cycles, got to the place where I was like, okay, maybe marriage is going to fix it. 
you know, mm. thinking that like, that's just the end all be all like, this is just the next thing I'm supposed to do. So got married. And then about a year later, that's when like the next cycle started back up, started into affairs back and forth, year and a half long affair, back and forth, kept going through multiple affairs There was about five total that went through. And there was multiple things all along the line that should have clued me in on something, but it was never my fault. Like it had to be, my wife doesn't connect with me. These people get me like all this stuff. It was always like idealized. This person was amazing. Like the best person ever got to the place inside of working with in business and with teams and stuff like that, where we started taking different personality tests and descriptions. And so like disc Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, you know, 16 personalities, like strengths finder, all those different things. And started seeing again, like no empathy, a lot of traits where it's like very different than a lot of other people. So I'm like, okay, like something's different. Something's there. Later on, I want to say throughout some of the times of like the cheating and affairs, there was one point that I remember that I turned and I asked my wife, I was like, I don't connect with people. I don't care with people. You know, I was being very like kind of open to that point. And I was just like, I don't really like connect with you. I don't really connect with other people. I was like, maybe I'm a sociopath. Mm -hmm. And we like looked it up and she's like, no, nah, I don't think you're a sociopath. I think you're a narcissist. And I was like, nah, I'm not a narcissist. And just kind of brushed it off. But then I made sure to convince her and to tell other people that I wasn't a narcissist so they could go back and tell her that I wasn't a narcissist and kind of like <laughs> perpetuate that whole thing. A lot of like different events. There's a lot of things. But some of understanding some about personalities, understanding, uh, learned a little bit about shame, understood that like I have a big component of shame that I never really connected with before, never understood. I read some books on emotional intelligence of like understanding there's things that I don't connect with that I'm lacking in one sense, trying to learn about those. Eventually got to the place where the fourth affair, I was with a girl who was narcissistic, with mainly borderline with like narcissistic traits. And that started opening up my eyes as far as about me a little bit, mm -hmm. as far as like, I saw what I would do, but I saw it from her. And it wasn't a reflection of me because she was doing it to me. And then like, five other guys at the same time. So I was like seeing the same stuff. And I was like, Oh, it didn't make an awareness of Oh, I should change. It was just like, Oh, crap, like, that's what that is. I identify a little bit with that too. Finally got to the place where I went to a sex addiction intensive. Basically, my wife and my boss, they like sent me to it and went to that. And the piece that came out of that was frustrating and relieving at the same time, because I walked away from it being like, I'm not a sex addict, but that means I'm a narcissist because of everything that kind of came out. That was actually one of the outpourings of it. Some of that then transitioned into got into therapy. So started off, did about six months of EMDR therapy and then got into regular therapy after that cognitive behavioral therapy, like all that kind of stuff and kind of walked through that. And that's when I ended up getting a diagnosis, like later on after working with a therapist for multiple months, I've been with her now for over two years, I guess be two and a half coming up here soon. I got into a group called Wake Up Warrior. And that was a group that started to wake me up to the lies that I had in myself. I knew that I lied to other people. Like I knew I lied to my wife. I knew that I lied to my coworkers, my boss, family, anything like that. But I didn't understand that I had lies to myself of like what I actually thought, what I believed. I was like, I am a good person. I do love my wife. I do love these other people. I do care about all these people. But all they were was lies that I was believing, trying to justify and make sense of the reality that I was putting myself in that I don't want to be accountable. And so through that, that also helped to wake me up. So all that to say, there's like a lot of different pieces that were a part of like my puzzle of starting to understand 
So I normally say like, I didn't have like a light bulb moment. I had more of like a dimmer switch. It like slowly turned on of like little pieces of understanding bits and pieces of me to be able to come to some of that conclusion and then start into that process. Let's go back to your childhood. Yeah. What is your personal opinion on like nature versus nurture as it applies to this? So I believe it's more nurture than nature as far as like the kids are a product of their upbringing, regardless of parents' attention, intentions, either way, mm-hmm. still a product of their upbringing. Nobody is just a blank slate. Everybody comes out with different tendencies, ideas, thoughts, but then their environment shapes that and shifts that in multiple ways. So I think it's a, a product of the environment that the child's raised in, but then also how they're trained and how they're brought up and understanding how to deal with their emotions, how to process their feelings, how to deal with shame and guilt and some of the big drivers that if left untapped or unfocused on end up being something that becomes debilitating. So explain the environment or you know what was it like growing up in your home? Yeah, so I grew up in a house that was very much on the religious forefront. So my dad was a pastor beforehand, then an evangelist, and then a pastor, and then a missionary. So like all the whole gamut and everything. And the house is pretty controlling as far as like regimented what you could or couldn't do kind of a thing. Like we have to follow these guidelines, these rules kind of a thing. I grew up in evangelism. So two weeks after I was born, I was on the road getting passed around church to church, person to person. Driving to driving the car as as a two-month-old? No, I was was with them, but basically passed around as far as like in different nurseries and with different people like every single week as my parents would be doing like special meetings, different services, stuff like that. So there's a little bit of a disconnect, I think, that was like originally there. So it kind of touches in on some of the nurture piece of some disconnect with the primary caregiver because there wasn't as much of that with going back and forth. So like that happened growing up in those households, a lot of times... It was talked about in one way and demonstrated in one way, and it was more along the lines, and and you run into this in Christianity as a whole and religion as a whole, is more conformity of like, you need to look this part, you need to act this way, which for us, it looked like that a lot because each week we were walking into a brand new church that we had to perform. Like we had to show up, we had to do certain things, we had to help, you know, all this kind of stuff under the form of ministry. And there was ministry that happened. But as far as like my perspective, a lot of it was like, okay, regardless of what's going on with you, this is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. Like now it's time to go. So there's a lot of pieces of that, that I think had a lot of influence in that regard. Mm -hmm. Were you your dad's favorite? Mm, I was the only child. So I was everybody's favorite. Put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. So yeah, just a one and done kind of thing. Just me. Yeah, that's so interesting. So you've been on this journey, what, for like two and a half years? years been more like three and a half or so so i mean even before that there was like signs but as far as like actively pursuing it you know been with my therapist about two and a half years emdr was six months before that was starting to ask some of these questions starting to go down some of that journey so have you had conversations with your parents about this stuff Mm -hmm. we have now what does that look like so i'd say like initially they weren't very receptive just because like growing up <laughs> or, or growing up, there wasn't a view of psychology and there wasn't yeah. really a view of like personality disorders and things like that. And part of that is also just like their generation and their culture, like they're growing up, like didn't really put a lot of stake in that. Kids are supposed to be like seen, not heard, you know, they're just supposed to be quiet, just move on, you know, kind of a thing that it w- didn't really have much credibility. And so that really wasn't brought up in our just relationship and what was actually there. So like that wasn't ever a thing. So as now bringing it up and saying like, Hey, this is what it is. There's definitely a huge piece of like, Hey, understand 
you did the best you could in that situation. I'm not blaming you and I'm mad. Like we have a pretty good relationship now, but there definitely was like a transition time of, you know, them wanting to take responsibility for it. Me setting up different like ideas or boundaries of like, wait a second, like, nope, that's not something you have to own. That's not something I have to own. Like it is what it is. Now we can choose to move forward of like how we're going to interact, how we're going to move forward that direction. But I would say initially not very receptive. Now it's more of something that we have a pretty good relationship. It's something that they now see like the work that I'm doing. Like they see some of my videos, they hear actually connect with other people across the United States that like say like, oh, we just saw your son on TikTok or something like that. You know, and they're like, oh, but they see it on the positive side of hearing people that are getting help or they're getting out of abusive relationships. Just this other week, they sent me a message of like, hey, we ran into you so-and-so that know so-and-so. And they wanted to let you know that they really appreciate it because it actually helped them in their abusive relationship. So like, they see like the positive side that it all had a plan. And that's why we're here today. Yeah. So I think that that's like my big message here is like, you know, our parents are just a product of their own upbringing mm-hmm. as well. You know, like, I don't think that family dysfunction just pops out of nowhere. However, I think that it's really important that we we make sure that we feel and express the hurt, the pain, the sadness of our childhoods. And I think sometimes people can go from directly from, oh, my parents are just a product of their upbringing as well. So now I forgive them. Mm. And I think often we're missing that step in the middle where it's really important that we feel the feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's all valid. So do you feel like you had, you know, a period where, you know, you were able to express that? Yeah, because there was periods of time where there was decent, like, disconnection from them, for sure. We kind of ran through this whole period over the past year where because of housing situation, we sold our house, we were moving down to Florida, all this kind of stuff, transition that we ended up being in the same town for, I don't know, I guess it was like two and a half months or something like that. And I actually worked like over at their house. It just worked out better logistically wise, internet wise, all that kind of stuff. And there was a lot of things that came up while I was there, not even necessarily like about them, but just like feelings, emotions, triggers that had to be processed, things that had to be worked through things that like my therapist and I would like go through, like talk through like, Hey, I don't understand why I'm feeling this or why I'm getting triggered here. All these different things. Ultimately, like one of the biggest pieces during that time was one of the things I do inside of Warriors, we do a thing called stacking, which is kind of like doing your own CBT to yourself as far as like walking through your triggers, your emotions, your feelings, talk about like the story that you actually believe, how that affects you and what you actually need to believe based on the facts of the situation. So it's like walks you through this like logical step. And for me, it was like one of the longest ones I'd ever done. It was like, it's probably I think like 13 pages long. And it got to the place where I was done with it. And then I was like, awesome. I got that out. I felt the feelings, everything. And then it was about like a couple of days later, I just had this thought Mm. and this voice of like, now I need to share it with them. Mm. And so that was a very unusual spot because it put me in a unique position of being vulnerable and saying a lot of really hard things, but also trying to say it out of love. This is where I am now. And so like we sat down in the living room and for, I think it was like three hours, I like read through every single word that I wrote and we'd stop, we'd talk about it, process it, kind of move through it. And so there was a a lot of tears, a lot of like just moments of like back and forth, but ultimately it was really healing in that regard. What has your process been as far as working through kind of the religious like trauma aspect? I think so. 
part of it is closely tied to my journey inside of warrior of understanding like who I am and understanding like the pieces of me that I needed to work on for me. And then to develop a connection with God that's not based on a religion and is not based on a certain genre, but is based on like my relationship with him versus conformity to a certain norm or a certain aspects. Because a lot of growing up was about conformity versus connection. And I think that's a big part that the religion as a whole misses because mm -hmm. we focus so much on like the couple has to stay together because they are Christian or they have to do this or she has to respect even though he's being abusive. All this stuff that's like pervasive in a lot of Christianity and religion that is very destructive and detrimental. So for me, I had to go on my own journey. Part of the reason why I got involved with Wake Up Warrior and I started down that journey was because initially there was nothing God related inside that. And I was attracted to that mm -hmm. because I was like going through all this and going through multiple affairs, lying, all this stuff and people being like, you just need to love God more. I'm just like, that doesn't help me at all. Like, that's just a bunch of baloney. Like there's no point in me doing it because I couldn't unlock the part of me that was still lying about myself. And so as I started to do that, it started opening up the possibility for true connection versus just looking the part or masking or playing a part that I need to play. Mm -hmm. I know for me, it's only through like intense, excruciating pain that I'm like willing to change and do the work, you know, cause I mean, some people would say that they don't think that narcissists can really change. Other people will say that they can, but it takes a real special person. What do you think it was for you? Because this shit's hard work, right? Yeah. Every day. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think it was that really like motivated you to really want to do this work? I'd say two things if I boiled it down. One was acknowledging that I have a cycle and I'm not going to break out of it unless I change. And then two was acknowledging the lies that I had in my own life. So like, that's a piece that no one can change. Empath, narcissist, borderline, human, nobody can change on the planet if they're not willing to be honest and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing I run into time and time again that I see narcissists that are unwilling to actually approach and actually acknowledge the truth because of revealing who they actually are. And a lot of people that have been hurt by narcissists, survivors, don't want to acknowledge the truth because they don't want to deal with the pain of what they've been through. And for me, there was a place of finally getting of like, okay, if I actually start acknowledging the truth. So like, I got to the place where I acknowledged the lies that I had. There's like seven different lies that I was like, okay, these are the lies that I have in my life. These are the things. So like, well, are they? Yeah, let's, let's get into these. <laughs> yeah, off the top of my head, like, I am a good person. That was one of them. Uh, I love Kayla. I'm committed to Kayla was one of them. I'm in love with other women. I deserve happiness. Like, there was seven different of them that I acknowledged. And I was like, okay, these are things that have made up a lot of my thought process. But then it wasn't until later that it actually came to fruition of me actually working on it and changing it. So I got involved with Warrior, understood I had lies, and then I didn't do the work. So to give you a good example of like not doing the work of how it's hard work and not doing the good work, I got into EMDR for six months. I was inside of Warrior at that time. I was inside of, then I went to regular therapy. I did that for about five months and then my wife left. So there's all this process of like, hey, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, but the true change wasn't there. There still wasn't. And part of it, I think, is initially doing the reps of like, Okay, I don't know, am I making this decision because is the narcissistic side of me or this is like a good side of me? Like there's a piece that like when people start coming to terms with it, they're like, I don't know what part of me to believe kind of thing. 
and you start doing it over and over and you start to realize, okay, like I, I'm what I'm making myself based on my decisions. And so there's a whole piece of that, that initially people are like really confused about, especially when we talk about narcissism and like them struggling to come into terms with it. And so there was a piece of like, I was putting in reps, but they wasn't actually building anything because I wasn't changing some of my thought process, some of the things that were actually happening. I was still clinging on to other supplies, other people. I was still doing the work, but still holding on to someone else at the same time. And so going through that whole process, like that's why a lot of times we have to clarify and try to help people understand, like just because your narcissist goes to therapy or goes to counseling doesn't mean that they're going to change and doesn't mean that they even want to change. You have to be able to see over a long period of time, are they being honest, vulnerable, and showing that consistent change? Otherwise, they'll just do it to conform to you or to the therapist or anybody else. I did a video just today, actually, that we'll record it today of like, don't give a narcissist a checklist because then they just go through, check all the boxes of like, this is how I want to look and appear for you. But then a lot of times they revert. You know, I had a client the other day that I was talking to and she told me that her narcissist was like a six month period where he was like really awesome, really great because she'd given him a checklist. And then finally it just blew up and he was like, I'm tired of doing life your way. Left her because all it was just conformity. And until the change is actually like inside of like, I want this change because I wasn't changing for my wife. I wasn't changing for anybody else because I was doing all the therapy stuff and it still wasn't clicking a hundred percent. So she left. And at that point she left, she took our daughter, she moved out of state, you know, we do hardly communicate. We like can't communicate. I think like once or twice really about like our daughter. Cause I like had her for a weekend and like, I think, I think it was one weekend, maybe two in like four months. And then from there, like she came back to originally get some stuff and she noticed how I was showing up was different at that point. And so we started, you know, saying like, okay, what is this? What does this look like? And started going from there. Yeah. I guess the one thing is that like, if somebody's outed, let's say somebody's like outed as a narcissist, like for you, for example, if it's like boss knows, family knows, wife knows, it's like how much of it is, you know, people taking action because they feel like they need to portray a certain image now that they've sort of been like outed, you know what I mean? Right. Versus yeah. like genuinely wanting to do the work and change. And part of that, one of the easiest, well, the easiest way to know is when you take the relationship 100% off the table. Like when the person's like, okay, we're done. Or when the person's like, think of it this way, you'll normally see a narcissist change at the end of the relationship. So like, you're like, Hey, I'm going to leave. Oh my gosh. Like, I'm so sorry. Let me do all those nice things for you. Or I'm going to change. I'm going to get into therapy. Like as soon as that moment happens of like, Oh, I'm going to do like, I'm going to leave you of like, I'm done. I'm going to file for divorce. All of a sudden you'll see everything flip a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times you'll see stuff flip. What's happening there is kind of like twofold that people have to understand is like they flip in the moment to try to keep you and maintain their image. Typically, they also do it to keep you and maintain that image with themselves so they don't feel like they're the bad person. That way you leave and then, oh my gosh, they left me. Like I didn't do anything wrong. Like she left me, she walked out, that kind of thing. That was a piece of me as part of it was my religion at that point of like, it would look bad if we got a divorce. It would look mm -hmm. bad to my parents if we got mm -hmm. a divorce. And so there's also a piece of my image that I was like, I would rather her leave than I can spin the story. Then I can still look like a good person. Then I can still be okay. But then, so this happened a couple of times where she'd be like, okay, I'm leaving. Pack the car, get ready to leave. And then I'd be like, no, don't go. And then she'd stay. And then I would get pissed off because at that point I already wanted her to leave. Mm -hmm. I just wanted her to leave and make it her decision so that I didn't have to look bad in that moment.
Mm. So what does the process look like between the two of you as far as like building trust? Yeah. So it's been a long process for sure. A huge part was the honesty and the vulnerability piece. So there's a, there is a time early where she would like check everything, do everything. She has access to everything at any time. She can log into anything. She has all the codes, everything like that. So like, there's a piece of like building trust of like, I had to be super vulnerable and super transparent of like what I was doing, where I was going, what was happening. And that was something that there's times, you know, I get like frustrated of like, why do I have to do this again? Then I have to remember, well, it's because I caused this. So like always reverting back to like, this is the price that I pay if I actually want to continue with this. And so getting into that place of starting to hold space for each other where I could actually like let her express her feelings and not react, not respond. And it wasn't perfect and it wasn't the greatest all the time, but it was a process that we kept seeing continued growth and continued progression in that regard. And then we did originally like years ago, we did couples counseling, which I don't recommend if you're with a narcissist to go to no, any I couples counseling therapist therapy, won't do it stuff either. like that. <laughs> Well, a lot of them don't know. Like that's the piece is like therapy sometimes gets people even more screwed up because they'll only view the narcissist side because they're really good at manipulating. The first therapist that we ever went to, my wife walked away thinking it was all her fault. She mm -hmm. was like, I'm the reason why he had affairs. And like, that was a Christian counselor in that whole community. So like, for me, I'm like, don't go to couples therapy. And even more so, I'm like, don't go to a Christian counselor if you're with a narcissist, like, especially because it gets really <laughs> skewed. Yeah. It gets really awful. And that's coming from like my standpoint of being a Christian. I'm just like, don't do it. It's not worth it. So when she came back, I don't remember the exact time, but after she came back, we started looking into some couples therapy. We went to one, same thing, except I noticed it at this time. I was like, how he's talking doesn't leave it open, doesn't leave it vulnerable. And how he's talking is also very easy to manipulate. So we dumped him. We were like, okay, let's find someone else. We ended up finding a therapist that actually works in the same office and structure as our other therapist. So basically I see a therapist, she sees a therapist, and then we see a third therapist that has NDAs with all of them. So they can all talk together, which is kind of just helps with more of the trust factor as well. And so started down that route and the therapist that we see, he's really good in helping just work on the emotional side, like the vulnerable side that I don't like working on that kind of piece and being able to talk through that and creating space and creating safety and being able to rephrase and work through stuff that all of a sudden I'm like, oh, like that's what she means. Like I didn't view it that way. I viewed this as an attack, all these different types of things. And so that helped in rebuilding that trust but none of that ever would have worked until I was at the place of willing to be honest and then willing to show up in a truthful state without manipulating the therapist. So do you view yourself as like an anomaly? I would say in some cases, yes. But in other cases, like I view there being less information out there for narcissists to wake up and there's more, there's less people out there actually holding people accountable. So as a result, like this trend will just keep happening of people that don't want to be accountable and don't want to be responsible. I think other people can tap into that, but it all comes down to their willingness to be honest. Like that's really the crux of it. And unless, think of it this way, unless a narcissist, I'm trying to think of the best way to be able to say this, people don't take it the wrong way. Unless a narcissist can be broken down to the core of who they actually are and built back up on truth, like nothing's really going to change. And the thing you have to understand is that person's partner is never going to be able to do that. Like it has to be something completely mm. different. And so for mm -hmm. me, like that one venue was like, wake up warrior and going through that process. 
of having like someone like scream in my face. So like, Hey, if you want to be a man, you need to stop fucking lying. Like there was like a big piece. I'm just like, Whoa, like I wasn't used to that type of thing. And so there's a piece of that. And, and part of that, honestly, right now is one of the filters that I use. If I'm actually going to personally work like one-on-one, like with a narcissist is like, I'll be like, Hey, be totally glad to work with you. Here's what here's the requirement. Here's what you need to do. Here's this 30 day challenge. As you do it, you can message me all you want. We can interact, all this kind of stuff. Very few have ever even done it, or very few actually go into it and do the work required. And mm-hmm. so, like for me, like that's kind of like a filter of like, I'll work with any narcissist out there, but I want to know that they actually want to do the work. Otherwise, I'm like, don't waste my time. Yeah, I think it's similar to like with addiction. And I don't really know why some people, you know, I've been sober for 14 years. Like, I don't know what it is, like why some people get to the point where they're willing to do whatever it takes to get sober and other people aren't, you know, like it's, I don't know what that is. I think a big piece ends up being the story that they tell themselves. You know, whether we call that stories or fables or limiting beliefs or lies, like either way, it's what they tell themselves that sells them on the outcome that they actually have. And Mm -hmm. so like, well, I might not like this, but the story I'm telling myself is, this is just who I am. I'm not good enough to have a good relationship. I'm not good enough to get out of this addiction. All these things versus like, wait a second, let's actually look at the truth, the facts of the situation and help you replace the faulty belief that you have and help you believe in what's actually true. Yeah, I think what lies at the core for all of it is shame, right? Like, would you say that like what lies at the core of narcissism is is shame? 100%. Yeah. I normally describe like underneath narcissism is like the raging river of shame. Underneath borderline is the raging river of abandonment, and they both kind of connect with the stream of rejection. And so there's like pieces of that you see kind of intermingle and kind of flow back and forth. But 100% like narcissists are running away from shame. So it's such a buzzword these days. Do you feel like it's overused? And what do you feel like are like some of the biggest misconceptions out there right now? I mean, everyone seems to be a narcissist these days. And I think to be perfectly frank, it's only going to get worse. Our society, our culture, and our broken families are only going to produce a generation more narcissistic, more entitled, and, and mm-hmm. more full of themselves than what we've ever seen. So, like, as right. it continues, it. like <laughs> the percentage of narcissists that are in the world, it's only going to maximize. I don't think it's I don't think it's going to go down. You look at like Google and it's like whatever, like 0.5% or whatever, and you put that in like the world population, you're still talking millions of people. You look at people that are leading experts in different pieces of narcissism field like Dr. Romani and she's been even known to say like hey it's more like 10 to 12 percent so there's like huge varying pieces there I think at the end of the day when people get so wrapped up on the label that we need to throw the label out and be like hey how is this person demonstrating that they care about you how are they demonstrating love how are they demonstrating respect how they're demonstrating honesty. Because the end of the day, you have people that are looking for the labeled narcissism so they can justify actually believing in themselves and leaving that person. The end of the day, there's so many people and it is a buzzword. It gets thrown around. I don't know if it gets, I wouldn't say it gets thrown around too much or too little. I just think at the end of the day, there's a lot of people out there that are not actually learning how to live in truth and demonstrating that on a consistent basis. So there's a lot of people that stick in relationships for too long of a period of time because they don't know who they are. They don't know what direction they're going. And as a result, they don't have any boundaries. So they're very susceptible for narcissists, for other toxic people to come into the life and pull them away and make the attention all about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think too, that it's a way for people to not have to look at their own shit mm-hmm. too. You yeah. know, 
there's definitely a huge piece of that. How I normally describe it is we help take people on a healing journey into a growth mindset because your healing is not a destination. It's not going to be like, oh, now I'm fixed. You know, it's always going to be this journey. But there also comes a point where you stop healing from that relationship and you start growing yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's a unique pivot that happens when we coach and we work with people of like, there's a lot of it that's like all focused about the narcissist of like, why did he do this? Why doesn't he care? Why does he not care about the kids? Like all this stuff. And we have to work through those. We have to work through the stories, those limiting beliefs, the thoughts that they actually have there. But then it starts turning and pivoting as they start realizing like, oh, like my worth was tied up in him. Like I'm viewing this, that, that he actually made me feel this way. This is something and we start to pull out pieces that they looked in inward And that's when we start to see a lot of the growth and the change happen because it actually solidifies them of not going back and not getting with a toxic person because they start developing a stronger sense of identity that doesn't let someone easily pull them off the path that they're called to be on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are you mostly working with partners of narcissists? Typically, I would say as far as like, if I'm working with partners, I don't know about that statistic. It'd probably be close to probably about like 90%. Then there'd be others that I talk to that are, I talk to several like friendship ones, talk to several mm-hmm. like parent-child relations, different things like that. But the majority would be partners. At what point are you like enough's enough? How, what do you mean? As far as like, because I'm assuming that you're mostly working with them on, you know, the relationship with themselves, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like when you're in a relationship, the phrase of like, you know, if things are to stay exactly as the way they are right now. Mm-hmm. Like, are you okay with that? Right. And so it's like, at what point? Cause it's like, you don't want to have false hope, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's like Wayne, how much time and an opportunity does somebody give someone? What I find is people either show up and they do the work or they don't. Mm-hmm. Let me put it this way. I've fired more narcissists working with them than I ever have any other client. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I'm saying when you're working with like with the partner, like when you're advising them, it's like how many chances do people give someone? Like for me to them? No, they're in the relationship. They're in a relationship with a narcissist. It's like at, at what point do they need to like give hope that this give up hope that this person can change and walk away? If they're not seeing honesty, vulnerability, or consistent change. Over what period of time? That's it. Any? Like if you've been with someone for five years and they have ever shown that walk away, mm-hmm. like, why are we staying in a relationship where you are constantly getting screamed at, yelled at, devalued, belittled, all these things. Like you're in a relationship that makes you dependent on that person because of the validation, because of things that are going on there. Like my goal is not to just break people apart. My goal is to say, Hey, let's find out the truth. Well, he loves me so much. Okay. Can you tell me how he demonstrates love? Well, and they don't have, they don't have answers. And so I'm like, okay, is this the relationship that you actually want to be in? Well, yes, because like we had some great moments. I'm like, okay, well, tell me about the moments after. Well, like we had a really great date. Well, yeah, but beforehand, you just said he like belittled what you were wearing. Afterwards, he almost killed you in the car because of road rage. Like, like what version of this do you actually want? So we try to paint a picture of where they are versus where they want to go. And then we help them uncover that. And so I'm very much less about being like, hey, go no contact, leave this person, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, hey, let's talk about it. Let's discover what's going on. Let's discover where you are and where you want to go. Is this actually leading that direction? Because you'll have narcissists that'll talk up and down about how they're changing, how they're doing all this stuff. You know, someone will be like, well, he said he's going to go to therapy. And I was like, how long ago is that? Well, four months. Okay. Has he done it? No. What, like, oh, well, he got into therapy once. Okay. 
who made the appointment? Well, I made the appointment. Okay. So like you need to stop like catering to them and like move back. And if they don't actually make the change on their own, then that's where you need to like start moving on. Sometimes I'll even say, think of it this way, come up with six goals slash boundaries that are like smart goals. So time sensitive, quantifiable, you know, things like that. Come up with six of them. Okay. In the relationship, you're only allowed to communicate two of those to the partner. Okay. The other four you'll take to your grave. Mm-hmm. because they need to be your like ripcord that says, Hey, I'm no longer going to tolerate this shit moving forward. And if they do the first two, you're like, amazing, they're changing. But then you don't see any more progression. You don't see that continue to move forward. Then, you know, they just did that because you gave them a list. Mm-hmm. They don't do the first two. Then you're like, well, they didn't even hit those two. So they're definitely not going to hit the rest. I'm out. And so we try to help people understand like their worth, their value and their boundaries. And typically that's all directed towards finding a good sense of identity and also a purpose and direction. Yeah. And it takes so fucking long. (laughs) I was just thinking about this the other day, just about in my past and in all the relationships that I was in and wholeheartedly knowing, you know, how, how toxic it was and literally just feeling like I didn't even have a choice to walk away, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just not even feeling like, and not because of the other person, right. But because of the, the trauma right. bond and not like knowing that this relationship is killing me mm-hmm. and the thought of walking away wasn't even a consideration. And that is such a painful place to be in. Very much know? so. The the interesting thing about it is like, imagine how that person treated you. And then imagine if you had a stranger walk up to you randomly one day and treat you the same way, you'd be like, Mm. screw you. Like, I'm not going to do that. But because of how it's been ingrained, it becomes a story that you believe that's either acceptable or that's part of what life is going to be like. A lot of times we see this in the form of like cognitive dissonance. So like, think of it this way, mm-hmm. cognitive dissonance, think of it in just a simple illustration of the person saying, hey, I love you. And then they slap you in the face. I love you. And then slap you in the face, two opposing things, right? What happens is over a period of time, when you put that in a romantic relationship, you have someone that has that happen over and over the emotional, the mental, the physical abuse of I love you. And then slap you in the face. It's happened over and over. They get to the place where they either believe this is all that I'm worth Mm -hmm. So like this version of reality, this is all that I'm worth. Or because of their upbringing, because of previous relationship, they're like, this is what love is. Like, this is just the norm. Like, this is what I'm used to. They haven't haven't seen a demonstration of a healthy relationship to actually move forward. Or sometimes the third one is like the people that wait, they're like, this is the price I have to pay. Mm. Like, this is the price I have to pay either because I deserve this, or this is the price I have to pay of like, this is just the toll road. Like, this is just the piece I have to pay to be able to get to the destination that actually has us loved and, connect- and connected. He just has a communication issue. There's a small problem here, like all this kind of stuff. It'll get better. And so those three realities normally get sold in the aspect of cognitive distance in a romantic relationship that leaves people stuck and oftentimes immobilized where they won't make a move. And so we have to kind of help break that down so they actually see it in a different light and they see more of an understanding of the fog that they're in. And once they're able to acknowledge and see the truth, that's ultimately what sets them free. Yeah, that was a big aha for me was the realization that, you know, on the surface, I really considered myself to be someone with high self-esteem, high Mm self-worth, but my actions in romantic relationships, you know, clearly showed otherwise. Right. And I think the thing for me is, you know, the, the dysfunction and the trauma that I experienced 
as a kid growing up was a lot more insidious. You know, a lot of people don't even realize, you know, mm-hmm. the, the beliefs that they're holding. Like it, it was mind blowing to me. I couldn't understand yeah. why I was willing to accept mere crumbs. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It's very, very true. And we see that happen like so often where people get used to that and slowly, slowly sedated by the lies that they believe from the other person. So when it comes to that piece, like I remember I was in a situation once where, you know, I knew it was a relationship that I didn't want to be in, but the thought of leaving, as I said, wasn't a consideration for me. And what was really important for myself was to like hold compassion for myself in that moment, as opposed to like shaming the shit out of myself. So I'm assuming that you're working with clients who know that they need to get out, but they're not willing yet. And how are you helping them navigate that process? So I would say out of all the clients I have, the majority are ones that are either realizing and like getting out, like they're wanting out, but they're not sure how, and they're not sure it's possible. I deal less and less with the people that are in it, but they need to be convinced to leave. That's a bad way to phrase it, but like they're in it and they know it's abusive, but they don't want to leave. We stumble across less of those people. I think part of that is also the platform that I'm on is like, by the time people watch a lot of content, they're like, okay, I know this is what it is. Like now what? And so I work with a lot of people like that in transition of like, okay, now I know like I'm going to file for divorce. What do I do? Or like, now I know I just separated. Like I've been no contact for a week. I like, he left me like a month ago. Like, what do I do now? And so a lot of it is very much focused on the healing journey. There's a piece that I can only help people to a certain point if they're not willing to be honest with themselves and they're unwilling to actually put in the work required. So I've had, I'm very frank with a lot of my conversations. I've had some frank conversations of being like, Hey, I see where you're at. I understand, but I think the pain is going to have to get worse before you Mm -hmm. actually want to change because they're not willing to actually not even just acknowledge it. There's a piece where they acknowledge it, but then they're not willing to do anything. Well, I can't. Well, this, and we can talk through limiting beliefs. We can talk through all these different mindsets to try to be able to help them. But then there's also a piece of like, they have to make the choice. Like they have to decide. That's why you'll hear in my videos, Hey, like go no contact. 100%. So I think no contact is the most effective way to be able to heal. It is not the only way because even if you go no contact, it's not proven to make you heal. We've seen that in a lot of case studies that we've done. But what we've noticed is like people get stuck and they get hung up on like, well, I can't go no contact or I can't make this happen. So sometimes it's walking them through how this would work, how this might be and really trying to help paint them a picture of where they could be and how to be able to achieve that. But ultimately the biggest thing is we have to be able to help them change their mindset, like change the limiting beliefs, the stories, the lies that they believe. And those are not all from the narcissist. Some of those have been implanted inside them from the narcissist, basically. It's almost like inception. Like they start to believe and take on the things that the narcissist keeps telling them. And so we have to be able to walk them through to be able to help them get to the truth of the situation so that they can be free. Because that freedom comes in the mind first. Think, think of it this way. We've discovered mainly three things is how I normally quantify it. We've discovered that just no contact will not have you heal from narcissistic abuse. Just you knowing everything about narcissism, you can know all the terminology, you can know about trauma and all this stuff will not be enough to let you heal from narcissistic abuse. Just going no contact, but then like moving across the country, like never seeing, never like having space and being like, time will heal. 
We've noticed that doesn't help either because we'll see people that are a year, that are five years, that are 10 years out of a relationship or even 10 years, no contact that are still stuck in the trauma bond. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that we help on a daily basis, help them rewire the mindset. So like I normally break it down like a narcissist rewrites history. Mm -hmm. Narcissist takes something that's true and it switches it to false. I rewrote mm -hmm. it from truth to false. We have to help people do the opposite, which is rewire that we help you actually see, hey, what you've been believing about yourself, about them, whatever it might be, is false. We help you rewire it back to the truth. Because the truth, again, is the only thing that's actually going to help set people free from not just the relationship, but from their mindset that'll keep them ruminating and stuck in the trauma bond for a long period of time. Uh, I'm a big proponent of, you know, I think it's important that we take some time to be single and really, you know, do the work on ourselves. However, once we start dating again, there's still more work to be done. Like it's mm -hmm. not just going to be like all easy breezy. And so how are you helping people navigate that process? If they have like a history of, you know, being in toxic and abusive relationships, stepping back into the dating process, like more mindfully. I think a piece of it is one them understanding what they've been through, but then ultimately it comes down to them understanding the truth about themselves. And that helps them stand in a completely different place. Think of it this way, like what we're trying to unlock is the version of you that you actually want to be mm -hmm. like the strong, confident, happy, healthy, whole, like person that's actually powerful and stands up as a beacon of light to other people. Like that's what we're trying to unlock. There's a piece of when you actually know who you are, your purpose on this planet, the direction that you want to go, your boundaries, you move into the dating game completely different. Like you start to notice things instantly. And instead of even tolerating it, you walk away. Like we see people that get back into the dating game and it's like a whole different ball game because they're like, yep, saw this, I'm out. Because it doesn't bother them anymore because they're not looking for validation from that person. They're not looking for acceptance from that person. They're like, hey, this is who I am. Like I'm going this direction. If you want to go this direction with me, that's great. If you want to do your thing and you do all this kind of stuff that's going to pull me off my direction of where I want to go, that's totally fine for you. It's just, it's not going to be with me. That's kind of one of the easiest ways to be able to say like boundaries is I believe a lot of boundaries need to be directional of like, if you know who you are and you know the direction you go, it actually creates these boundaries. It creates these guardrails mm -hmm. that actually protect you from other people sideswiping you and keeping you. So think of it this way, just a frank conversation of like, Hey, if you want to cheat, it's 100% fine. You can cheat all you want. Just know that when you come that home, it's not going to be with me. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like that's not who I want to be. That's not who I want to be with. I don't want to be with a cheater. So if you want to be a cheater, totally fine. You do you, but that's not going to be my life. And so we find people that are able to stand in their confidence and clarity, like massively different. And those are the people that are inside our Thriver community that are maximizing all four areas of life. They're maximizing like their fitness, they're maximizing their spirituality, they're maximizing their relationships, and they're maximizing their business. They're calling of the direction they want to go. And we do that on a consistent basis. And we see some massive results inside of it. Hmm, that's beautiful. So why don't you talk about all the different things that you have going on? So right now, if people are like, hey, I don't know what's going on with narcissism. I don't know anything about narcissistic abuse, uh, reactive abuse, guilt, shame. We have this first course that's a $7 course that you can get involved with. It's escapetoxicity.com goes through helping you understand. There's a lot of people that are like, I don't even know what's going on. That helps provide clarity and show a framework of how we start to teach and how we start to move forward. Then people get graduated and they move into the clarity challenge. And the clarity challenge is focused on bringing clarity to the situation, but ultimately getting rid of the trauma bond and helping them break down the rumination. Really, the main focus mm -hmm. is we attack the triggers. 
We attack the triggers that are telling you a story that sells you on a different version of reality than the truth. And as people start to learn that process and understand, they start to learn this process that we use inside of Thriver called stacking, which is a daily process of understanding the truth about the situation with everything. And yeah. so we have stacks that we use that are focused on, okay, I'm feeling angry. Here's a stack for angry. Feeling gratitude. Here's a stack for gratitude. I'm feeling guilt. Here's a stack for that. And they start to walk through and it's this dialogue that they start having with themselves more and more each day to come into a place of clarity and understanding of who they actually are and how to move forward from there. And that's what builds the confidence, like the repetition of doing. That's what puts them in a place that we normally refer to as power. Like when they actually are like confident in their body, confident in their spirituality, confident in their relationship, confident in their business, they start moving forward, making decisions that is no longer dependent on other people, but it's dependent on their values and their vision of who they actually want to be. Mm, amen to that. Feeling that hardcore. Well, cool. I'll put all your shit in the show notes. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. Thanks again to Ben. Go check out the show notes to links to all of his shit. I would love to know what y'all thought about this episode. Again, I didn't think that there was anything super controversial, but I I don't know. Is the term self-aware narcissist controversial in itself. I'm, I'm curious what y'all's opinion is. So I am, I'm hunkered down. We got the, her, hi Kiki, come here. Hey, come here. Say hi. Come on. You can do it. Oh, come on. You can do it. So we're here. I'm at my parents' house because the hurricane is coming and they have a generator that goes on automatically. So I am here, but I just looked at the update of the storm and it looks like it's not it's going to be mostly a little bit north of Jacksonville so I don't think it's going to be that bad and just well wishes to anyone who lives in areas where it's going to get hit pretty hard uh okay well I will see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child it's going to be super awesome super formal super excited if you're out of here it's going to be getting a promise Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.